Welcome to the 36th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the tenets of microservice monitoring as visibility and oper operability in distributed systems is complicated. Just a little bit complicated. Yeah, to call it complicated is to grossly um, simplify the problem that, that we, we look at here with distributed systems. So part of the reason that distributed systems are so hard is that in, in an older stack, in the traditional stack, you had one load balancer and a couple of application servers and a database server or a, a, a data store of some kind that you're reading off of. And monitoring this was very easy because you had a handful of devices. Usually, usually you count them on one hand. And when something broke, it was very clear what had broken. In a microservice world, you may have hundreds or thousands of services talking to each other, constantly updating pieces in state back and forth, and isolating which piece is having a problem or what dependency, what, is ha what one piece is having on another, can be excruciatingly painful to d derive. Yeah, suddenly that gets hard and complex really fast. And my, my upbringing in the operations world was way before uh, microservices and service-oriented architectures were a thing. So I still have a tendency to think, okay, even though we're breaking out functionality into individual services, we still sort of monitor them and treat them as just a little monolith. And that's really a flawed way of thinking. Yeah, because the the, the monolith view, the, the, the many little monolith views, ignores the fact that an authentication service, for example, isn't just being called for authentication. If it's slow, other pieces of the stack will start to slow down and cause timeouts in other places, and all kinds of things will happen. So you have to be very aware of the interdependency of all of the pieces of your system. Of the ripple effects. The butterfly effect. One of the places this comes up is in log aggregation. Well, first off, if you're not doing log aggregation, you're basically not doing logging, so get on that. But for microservice stuff, well, sorry, in the old days, logs were a RAID controller has failed, or other individual elements. And these are still actually important when you come to a, a Mesos controller has failed or other very uncommon events that happen maybe once a day. And that kind of thing you can percolate up through just a traditional log aggregation pipeline and have it just work. But when it comes... Hi, I'm the OS, and I'm reporting a hardware failure. Or if you're looking at how many of this, what percentage of the traffic is getting 200s versus 500s. That's a, that's a great solution for a log, a log aggregation pipeline. But when you're trying to ask the question of why are a third of my login requests taking four times as long as the, the rest of the login requests? A traditional log aggregation pipeline will not do a very good job with answering that question, if it can answer it at all, because it's not aware of all the context of all the pieces that it needs. Metrics don't answer that question. They just tell you that a quarter of your login attempts are kind of weird. Yeah, so how do you... How do you move from a log aggregation pipeline or a StatsD or um, Graphite or other simple metrics platforms into a better place where you can, you can better understand the distributed nature of these systems? Well, I think that touches on the differences between visibility and observability, which get confused pretty often and uh, get talked about quite a lot. And a lot of people, or most people really, don't have the same definitions just to make things even more complex. But visibility um, sort of 
depends on us as operations or the software developers to sort of predict the future more or less. Can I predict the future of what might fail and wrap that with metrics or logs of some variety? So when that happens, I have visibility into that specific bit of code. Observability is the inverse where we have the ability to to trace a workflow through the code and through different microservices and see and detect what might be wrong somewhere along that path uh, without having to exactly predict the future and instrument you know every single variable assignment uh, in the past. Um, and that's a challenging place to get to. And I definitely don't have the answers for for how we make that jump and get to where we'd like to be. There's a number of smart people who are talking about ways to make this better. One of those is to add metadata about metrics to the metric stream. I think this is the standard sensor format. And the idea is you don't just send foo.bar equals value at time. You say foo.bar equals value at time and you also include the host name and the tier and other pieces of relevant information with the metric. So when you're looking at it later, you can still slice and dice and do a little more analysis of the the data rather than just saying, well, I have this metric and with this path and this name. The important thing about the uh, standard sensor format idea, and unfortunately, I think it's uh, more of an idea than than something that exists, but the idea that you make one API call with your log information, with your tag information, with your values. And that one API call has the logic to figure out, okay, I need to emit a log message. Okay, this is a metric. Okay, I need to enable uh, or do some open tracing instrumentation. Instead of, of us as operations sort of forcing the developers to instrument logs, metrics, tracing, um, and and generally make their code much more complex than it, than it ever needs to be. Once you get all three of those actively going in your code, you're writing a lot more code for observability than you actually are for accomplishing what what you're being paid to do. It's also not at all reasonable to expect a developer to become an expert in a log aggregation platform and a metrics platform and any all of the other pieces of observability along the way. It's it's not okay to say, oh, well, the developer should just know how to do this. The developer should also make sure that he does all the namespacing, and the developer should make sure that he or she does all of the other pieces as well, while also writing their code and not leaking memory and not doing all of the other horrible things that they're expected not to do. We, so I think I've totally fallen victim to that particular uh, tenet of, of monitoring. Um with my experience with Prometheus, uh, it's a there is no uh, clustering. You scale out Prometheus by sharding, and it's common practice to shard Prometheus instances for each uh, SOA service team. Which means that although you may uh, package up Prometheus and install and wrap it with all sorts of nice automation, but at the the end result is that it becomes a part of the service that is being built that has a custom function. And that requires that the developers running that service have a higher level of knowledge of how Prometheus works than I think they really should. 
there's it's one thing to understand uh, how to instrument your code. It's another thing to know exactly what to do when you've added some more metrics and your Prometheus server is overloaded. Or how many histograms am I allowed to send? Or how do I properly aggregate and do sum of rates or rates of sums or however else I'm supposed to be doing this? Exactly. And where do you define the line between what you expect folks to know and understand about logging and tracing and, and metrics versus them sort of becoming the expert in the subject. Uh, what's what's clearly wrong is saying, hey, I'll help you run your monitoring platform, but it has to be part of your service. The monitoring is a service and should be its own contained entity, not directly part of other services. But finding that line is is definitely something that I've struggled with. I have as well on the log aggregation side of things. The Elasticsearch is wonderful and flexible in so many ways, but it also has the idea of statically typed fields, that you must have a field being the field that you say it is, and there's a really nasty set of race conditions that can come come into play with indexes and things. So on the one hand, developers understand static typing, and they'll be able to say, hey, we need to work out what this type of field is and how we're going to work on it. But it's also not reasonable to say, and so there's all these reasons about memory pressure and other background tasks and the way the cluster state transfers. They don't need to know or ever care about any of that. There has to be a usable middle ground. Yeah, and I expect on the metric side of the world uh, that folks sort of understand some of the basic tenets, like you expose a metric of how many CPU seconds your process has used rather than expose a metric of the percentage that your CPU is busy. Uh, with the former, if you miss scrapes or, or miss data points, you can still track exactly how much uh, CPU that your process is using. Um, with the latter, with CPU percentages, those can be really very misleading. Yeah, I think part of it is how much of the cognitive load we're willing to put on the developer. Um, he or she is working hard on all the things they're working on. And to say, hey, use counters, not gauges, generally speaking, for metrics, That's I think that's an acceptable line to draw. Or with logs to say, you really should only be emitting logs on errors and not on successes unless you're doing debugging and tracing because there's no need to have a, yes, everything's fine, a 200 okay, you know, thousands and thousands of times a second. But when it gets into the more esoteric pieces, it's probably... That's the point at which... Like namespacing. Yeah. Uh, the developer should have no input, no need to think about where their metric goes in the graphite namespace, what namespacing labels uh, get appended to their Prometheus metrics as well. That's yeah, something of, that should be very automated. All of that should be part of yeah, the standard library that your developer loads when he or she loads up their IDE and says, okay, I need to send a metric. And it knows what team they're on, it knows what project they're working on, and what you know code class they're inside of already, maybe even what method call. And they say, okay, I need to, to instrument this thing. Okay, well, you, you now have a, a really easy way to say, I need to get a metric on this, this on foo, and now you have it and not have to worry about where am I in the stack, where am I in the namespace, where am I in the logging pipeline, how deep am I nested in my fields? No, you just you emit the thing you need and you go ahead. The sort of guiding principle here that I'm trying to exactly help me, trying to use to help me nail down where that line is, is that innovation and experimentation has to be paramount for the developers. 
at uh, some companies that I know of, those innovation experimentation is even more important than the related costs. Of course, those companies print money, but um, that would the be ability so nice. to innovate, yeah, the ability to innovate is is extremely important for the DevOps uh, method of of getting stuff done and rolling out new product and better product. So having to share more cognitive burden by requiring everybody be an expert in monitoring or the various facets of monitoring really interfere with that. I totally agree. Metrics and logging are also converging upon each other at this point. As people add tags and other labels to metrics and looking at namespace, you have more and more metadata about a metric and people are trying to derive more and more metrics out of log data. And these spaces are slowly drifting towards each other. So I very much noticed this because as we work more and more people towards structured logging, so instead of parsing a log line, we actually have a pre-parsed information that we can do useful things with. That's a set of key value pairs. If you look at uh, label-based metrics with a metrics 2.0 format, that's a set of key value pairs. So suddenly yeah. things start to look a lot alike and, and the standard sensor format uh, steps in there as well. Yeah. And Jack, you, you forwarded me a article from um, Chimera Coder. I, I can't pronounce his actual name, unfortunately, but he was, his argument is if you're reading log entries, you're basically doing it wrong. If you're, if you're at the point where you're trying to tail to live tail a Kafka stream of you know fifteen thousand logs a second or whatever it is, you've missed the boat. You're not you're not doing what you want to do anymore, and those logs are useless. You should be taking those logs and aggregating them up towards metrics and using the logs only for kind of root cause and event detection. If you're debugging a distributed system, the first rule of distributed systems is your logs are not in order. Yeah, and this is where the there's two projects that I'm aware of, the Open Tracing Project and Zipkin, and they're related, but I haven't entirely sussed out what the relationship is. The idea is that instead of logging entries, you log spans of entries you log or spans of events. And then afterwards, you collate and you take those spans and you make them into traces. So you can watch a request flow through the system, and then you can look for common points between disparate traces about what's taking time and what's doing other things. And you can get a lot of a lot of value of trying to trace out a distributed system problem for log events very easily. My understanding of tracing has definitely moved very quickly from yet another visibility project to, wow, this is really useful and interesting. It may be a long-term player in the space of visibility. I definitely think it is. And Brendan, I don't think uh, neither one of us have had a, big chance to really play much with tracing but we know it's coming we've got some projects spun up around it uh so well one of my clients one of my clients is actually looking at implementing zipkin right now and so i have started provisioning some space in kafka and we're talking about which backend to use but i'm going to be working with a couple of developers and some sre folks on the okay we're standing up zipkin and how does this look from an implementation perspective and so i look forward to doing episodes in the future on how exactly do you go from zero to distributed trace logs in, in 30 seconds or less? Well, in, in a large environment, in a large distributed environment. One of the things that I think is 
very important about metrics and logs uh, as we work in a SOA sort of environment is to have unification of your metrics and your logs, of having a common code platform that each uh, service actually uses so that when you log a latency of a REST endpoint, that you're emitting the exact same metrics across all of your services. Um, and I think this uh, works just as well with logs. Um, but what this what this allows you to do is, A, you've automated those metrics, so you're removing uh, that from what the developers have to remember to do. B, they're the same everywhere. Now you can build automated dashboards, um, automated metric rules, default alerts, uh, and have some standards based on how fast a microservice needs to respond. And you can start building up that stack in a, in a at least here are a pile of defaults. If not, here are, here are the uh, tenants that your application must adhere to. Um, and that starts to take a lot of cognitive burden away from folks. Also, once you know that all of your metrics are of a common base format and other pieces, you can start feeding your metrics and your logs into platforms like R and start doing heavy scientific um, or heavy mathematical operations on them to understand and adapt and evaluate pieces. If you're not familiar with R, you should get familiar with R. You it's should pretty be. awesome. So everyone does different amounts of analytics on the data they have in their logs and metric systems. That's cool. Um, but clearly, we're moving more and more into a big data problem where we can do big data magic on it. And the tool in my tool bag that I whip out when I need to do really any any analysis that's a step above what Graphite can do by itself is dumping the data into R and start running some uh, a real analysis on it. And being able to produce reasonable histograms and better graphical representations of the data uh, than what Graphite can do. There was a talk at this year's Monitorama about using the Tidyverse, which is a grouping of packages for R. That are sane. That are sane and they're composable and they're pluggable. There's a graphing portion of it. There's all kinds of other analysis portions of it. But the idea that you have a single common language and framework with which you can compose and generate these dashboards, if your metrics and your logs are coming into it from a source that are kind of normalized already, you can do some really powerful things on this. And if you coupled it to something like Apache Spark or Apache Storm, so you're taking data off of the the message bus as it comes in, you're taking your logs off the message bus and pulling out the metrics that you need, you're live processing there, and then passing it into R, you can do some really phenomenal things. One of the things I'm looking for is is better R integration, uh, better toolage um, to do visualization of of my metric data, uh, visualization of my alerts. Um, how about unit testing my alerts? Um, so I'm definitely familiar with Grafana. I think that's definitely what most folks out there are probably using and familiar with. But the but better tools and maybe tools around Grafana, I'm interested in building automated dashboards. I'm interested in having developers define additional dashboards or additional pieces of a dashboard in their job definition. So 
in some sort of easy text format and being able to deploy that with the code. Uh, same for alerts. Alerts really do need some sort of UI to build the alert, be able to see where that alert would have triggered over past data, um, unit tests, but yet have that alert in a textual representation that you can easily add to your job definition, deploy with your job. And getting the best of both worlds is, is I think, missing. We can do automated deployments with Grafana, but that's lots of JSON. So there's definitely other toolage that's required in there. This um, is one of the places some... that when people talk about, you know, developers should be on call with DevOps, it actually makes sense because the person who's closest to the code is the developer who wrote the code. And if they're saying in the code, when, when we get to this value, we have a problem. Well, we should be able to pass that directly into the monitoring platform and the alerting platform to say, we should be graphing this thing. And when it gets to this, to the problem level, we should let somebody know about it. And all of that should be able to be composed directly by the developer who says, I know I'm the authoritative source for what is, what is a problem here. This is a problem. We should be able to alert on this. That should just happen. And having a developer in the loop as part of that, that feedback cycle will make sure that the, the correct value gets implemented and, and instrumented so everybody else can trust the service is doing what it's supposed to be doing. I may run the metric system, I may have your data, but I don't always know what it means without without the developer at hand. So yeah, I, I totally agree that uh, developers on call is good, but they have to have control over their metrics and their alerts. Um, and we have to, as operations, work with the developer teams that are on call to avoid alert fatigue at, at all costs. Yeah, that, that's the, the worst possible solution would be alert fatigue for developers because they're already doing a whole lot of work to get the code running. And then alert fatigue is something that operations are dealing with forever. It's so uh, easy to get into a bad alert, bad pager duty cycle, alert fatigue, uh, where you're getting 10, 20, 50, 100 pages a week. And it's really, really difficult to climb out of that hole. So it's really important that you not let it happen and as you spin up new teams and new on-call rotations it's important you don't let that happen well you also have to make sure that the alerts that people are getting are alerts that they can actually this is all kind of basic operation stuff but the alerts that the developer gets the developer isn't getting alert because a dim went bad in the server that that would be the worst possible I way to do not. this the developer's getting alert saying you know the code had a out of memory condition and you know, went into a, into a full GC loop. Okay, well, that's something that the developer should be aware of and should have seen in, in development at some point and go, oh, so I, I have an idea of why this is happening and where this is happening and I can move forward and I can get a fix. I can get it it's stable now and then in the morning we can get a fix in for that, that kind of thing. That's what we're talking about for developers on call. I think we understand in more classical operations that alert fatigue is really bad, really, really bad. But with the advent of... of microservices it's even worse we've we've gone from really bad to oh my god really horrible um so i've definitely been involved with lots of projects to reduce pager duty fatigue and it's important to remind yourself how bad it really can be because 
that's the whole thing about pager duty fatigue. You get desensitized to the amount of pages that are happening. And a lot of operations folk kind of see that. Oh, this this is the cross we bear as operations folks, and we we're on call, and it's a it's a war zone, and all. It's, no, no, it's no, it's horrible for your mental health. It's horrible for the health of everybody around you. It's damaging to your career. It's it's bad. We're here for when things go catastrophically wrong, and we need to fix them. That shouldn't be standard operating procedure. That that shouldn't be just be the way things are. And if it is, either you're doing something wrong or your company is. And one of those has to change. So a rule of thumb that I think was presented at Monterama was if pager duty cycles last a week and you get 10 or more pages, that is horrible to the point you should be looking for a new job. So that's, I'm going to leave that as the red line in the sand, I think. And I think that's a pretty reasonable baseline. And that's that's for the average week. Now there are going to be weeks that a data center goes weeks, down. There are going to be good weeks that S three goes down, and you're going to get a lot more than that. But on average, the the general week, you should not be getting more than a handful of pages at most. If you're getting five pages a week, that's still pretty bad. If you're getting yeah. ten pages a week, look for a new job. Or ask the hard questions about why. Things aren't better. Fix things. Come on, Brendan. One of the interesting things about alert fatigue that we need to be aware of now that we have all of this data that we're collecting is that anomalies aren't alerts. <laughs> and Sorry. really, folks, just because there's some anomalous data doesn't mean we need to wake everybody up at 3 a.m. And once you sort of model this mathematically... Uh, we're used to we're used to observations outside of four standard deviations being incredibly rare events, but that's one observation in about sixteen thousand. So if you're collecting metrics you know, every fifteen seconds or so of the of the latencies of people hitting your uh, web app, you're probably going to hit sixteen thousand hits pretty frequently. And it turns out that really anomalies are abundant. And it's it's the magic of the tail of the data. So it's important to build good dashboards so we can see things that are happening, but not alert on every single anomaly or build an alert rule just because an anomaly happened. Yeah, that would be a very naive way of looking at it. And this is where... The the hate the. A, a lot of people are trumpeting machine learning as the, the way for the future, and machine learning has to be coupled with something a that human that yeah that teaches it what what's actually important. You you can machine learn all you want, but until you have a human that says, nope, that's actually it may be anomalous, but we don't care about that. That that doesn't that's not business impacting, or that's not actually you know degrading the service. That just looks bad. Well, hey. So one thing I wanted to tack on to the end of this as part of the DevOps culture, as part of the tenets of of monitoring for other development teams is to build a, a safe space culture. Building culture is hard. Tuning or fixing 
poor culture is harder, but it's really worth the the struggles and the journey. Uh, making a safe space where everyone can present ideas, all ideas can be discussed. Better ideas or worse ideas aren't personally affecting, and that gives that empowers all of us to be able to come up with new ideas for monitoring. Have the developers give it a spin and see if that really works better for them or what the trade-offs are, and get a good communication uh, circle going where where there's not other things that are impeding feedback um, from happening. Yeah, all of the best engineering companies from the '60s and '70s and even '80s, their mantra was: we criticize the idea, not the person. So you had to be very clear when you're making arguments for or against. A, te- a, te- a technical solution to a problem that we're not saying that the engineer who came up with this is a good person or a bad person. We're saying that this idea has strengths and weaknesses, and let's figure out which weaknesses we can't overcome and which strengths we must have, and, and kind of go back and forth that way, and make sure that people feel comfortable bringing radical game-changing ideas, because not all ideas are going to be successful, but all ideas will enable the engineering organization to expand and grow and to challenge itself to find new ways to tackle problems and that's how technological growth happens it doesn't come by having come by having a culture where the new engineer doesn't is afraid to say anything because he or she feels like oh i'm just gonna get shouted down or well i'm I'm too junior to, to actually be of help it's no you bring the ideas let the ideas speak for themselves and give the people as much support as possible so they will continue to bring new good ideas if I deploy a Prometheus-based monitoring system and software engineers get confused about how to maintain their resources so they have enough resources to do the monitoring they want to do or how to properly work histograms to get accurate quantile estimations off of them and good data in general, I want to know. And I want to know more that than Prometheus is confusing. I want to know why it's confusing. And by building that feedback loop, we can take appropriate action and figure out what the root cause of of the problems are and, and work toward good solutions. Yeah, and if you have a culture that encourages the free exchange of ideas and encourages everybody to have a seat at the table, you will get the feedback. And if you have a culture that discourages that and makes people feel demeaned or belittled because they happen to say a dumb thing in a meeting one time, you will never have that kind of culture that you need so badly to survive in this kind of world. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment at the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts in email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 36th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thank you, and good night.